long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Disaster Queen podcast. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen. I'm a Midwestern writer, mom, and wife, and I've always had a fascination with disasters. It's not like I'm glad they happen or anything, but I am absolutely enthralled with learning why they happen, and especially with learning the personal stories of people involved. Today, we're going to talk about the very first disaster I ever remember being talked about, the May 18th, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Even though I was not quite three years old when it erupted, I remember it being talked about a lot during my young childhood. And even though I live nowhere near Washington State, I also remember people coming back from vacations with small jars of real Mount St. Helens ash, and we thought that was pretty cool. Who knows, maybe Mount St. Helens is where my extreme interest in disasters took root. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so thrilled to be doing this podcast, and it's my first episode, so let's dive in and find out what happened, why it happened, and what we learned from the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens is part of the very volcanic Cascades Mountain Range in Washington and Oregon. It's the same range as Mount Rainier and Mount Hood, which you might have also heard of. It's on the 700 miles long Cascadia Fault, and sits in Washington State's Gifford Pinchot National Forest. Before May 1980, the 9,677-foot high volcano was known for its gorgeous snow-capped peak, for logging, and for the beautiful hiking, camping, and boating the mountain and nearby Spirit Lake afforded. While it was still definitely considered an active volcano in 1980, it had last erupted over 130 years before in 1847, and so local residents had no reason or expectation to be afraid of the mountain or of enjoying its majestic surroundings. All that changed on March 27, 1980, when the sleeping giant, as they say, suddenly awakened with a 4.2 magnitude earthquake. Hundreds of smaller earthquakes followed in the ensuing days, and geologists and volcanologists from the U.S. Geological Survey flocked to the area surrounding Mount St. Helens. On April 1st, there was a small eruption of steam and ash called a phreatic eruption, and Washington Governor Dixie Lee Ray formally declared a state of emergency. In declaring this state of emergency and on the advice of the U.S. Geological Survey's geologists, Danger zones called red and blue zones were established around the volcano. Anyone in the red zones could be fined. Evacuations of people who lived in those zones began with one resident, Harry R. Truman, no relation to the president, Harry S. Truman, famously refusing to leave. Truman was the 82-year-old proprietor of the Spirit Lake Lodge and said that the mountain was part of him and he was part of the mountain and he was not going to leave. Other residents left but complained loudly about paying taxes and not being able to use their property, 
especially as April dragged on with little dangerous activity from the volcano. But back to those red and blue zones, those zones that were established to keep people out of dangerous areas. Those zones were established based on the geologist's belief that the volcano would erupt traditionally, like we think of a volcano erupting straight up with a vertical ash cloud coming out the top. Based on the way the volcano had behaved in its past worst eruption ever, the red and blue zones were mostly to the south and the east of Mount St. Helens. Although they did surround the entire area around the volcano, the red and blue zones extended largely to the south and east and were much smaller to the north and west of the mountain. So file that away for later, we will come back to it. While the blue zone extended up to 15 miles to the south and east, it extended just seven or eight miles to the north and west of Mount St. Helens. Nevertheless, many tourists flocked to see the mountain in April, even though they were being told to stay away for their own safety. But the mountain really wasn't giving them much to see, and people were openly frustrated, especially those evacuees who lived in the red and blue zones. However, the last week of April, geologists began to note that an ominous bulge was forming on the north face of the mountain. I don't know about you, but a bulge on a volcano sounds very scary to me. Uh, they began monitoring it closely, obviously, from observation points on some ridges called Coldwater 1 and Coldwater 2. And they saw that soon the bulge began to grow by five to six feet a day, which is crazy. It appeared to the geologists that the rising magma within the volcano had hit a plug or a stopping point on its way to the top. So on its way to the top out of the volcano, and it had diverted itself to the mountain's north side, creating that bulge. One volcanologist, a 30-year-old man named David Johnston, began to posit that the volcano could erupt from that north side laterally instead of vertically out the top, as a volcano that he had studied in Russia had done. But most geologists believe that the magma would make it past the plug and erupt vertically out of the top per usual. That kind of vertical eruption is what they had based the red and blue danger zones on. On May 7, 1980, the small phreatic eruptions of steam and ash resumed on the mountain as the bulge continued to grow. Law enforcement began to get frustrated with how many people were close to the mountain in the north and west areas where the blue zone had not been extended. To them, it clearly seemed that the people working there or just there for recreation, were in danger. The week of May 12th, they began advocating to extend the restricted zones and roadblocks even further, and by May 15th, law enforcement, the Forest Service, and the Weyerhaeuser Logging Corp that owned a lot of that land had agreed to a plan that would extend the Blue Zone 11.5 miles to the west and 7.5 miles to the north. However, it had to be signed into order by Governor Dixie Lee Ray, and it had to go through the state's Department of Emergency Services before that. For some reason, there was a delay in getting this plan to the governor, and the agency did not put it on her desk until Saturday, May 17th. Unfortunately, by this point, the governor was out of town attending a parade for the all-important Rhododendron Festival in Port Townsend. She would not see the order on her desk that weekend. That same week previous to this, local residents who had been evacuated began heavily pressuring the local government to let them back into their properties in the blue and red zones. 
On that same Saturday, May 17th, while Governor Ray attended the Rhododendron Festival, police officers began to let residents into their properties to check on their possessions and retrieve belongings, but they had to sign a waiver first to do so. So about 50 carloads of residents went in and out of those red and blue zones. And local character and Spirit Lake Lodge owner Harry Truman and his 16 cats, I'm a cat, I'm a cat lover too, Harry, I get it, stayed stubbornly at their home at the base of the volcano. The very next morning, Sunday, May 18th, 1980, at 8.32 a.m., the mountain decided that it was a showtime. And a 5.1 magnitude earthquake struck the mountain with a vengeance. This earthquake triggered a massive landslide on the north face of the mountain, the area where that bulge was, and that whole area where the huge bulge was just slid off the mountain at 110 to 155 miles per hour. And to this day, it is the largest landslide in recorded history. Just 25 seconds later, the mountain erupted laterally straight out of that same north side where the bulge had been with an astronomical violent ash cloud. On a logging landing 11 miles northeast of the summit, amateur photographer Gary Rosenquist was one of several people camping out and keeping an eye on Mount St. Helens. At 8.32, he heard one of his companions say, there it goes. He ran to his camera and accidentally turned it slightly to the right. This turned out to be a happy accident as it made the camera center on the landslide and the blast cloud, which was incredibly huge. In the next 36 seconds, Rosenquist snapped 22 now very, very famous photographs. They remain the best and most complete captures of any exploding volcano ever taken. And I highly encourage you to Google them and check out the progression of this unprecedented eruption. It is crazy pants. And it's also strangely beautiful, um, beautiful and tragic. You can view them individually or see them put together in a very cool time lapse. So definitely Google Gary Rosenquist's photographs. So the blast, the eruption blast, shot straight out of the north face of the mountain, not up, not vertically out of the top of the mountain like geologists had predicted that it would. The force of the blast was greater than 500 Hiroshima atomic bombs. I just, I cannot even wrap my head around it. I mean, I've read the words, I've researched this, but it just does not compute. This eruption was stronger than 500 Hiroshima atomic bombs. The ash cloud burst out of the volcano at 220 miles per hour, but it eventually gained speed up to 670 miles per hour, and it extended 12 miles into the air. It was and is the single most powerful natural disaster in U.S. history. It mowed down miles and miles of forests, making them look from above like someone had spilled thousands of boxes of toothpicks. These huge old growth trees just completely flattened, stripped of bark, stripped of leaves, looking like toothpicks on the hillside. It's nuts. If you look at the photos, it's just unbelievable. It does look like a nuclear war or something. Uh, the next problem caused by the eruption after the landslide and the superheated ash cloud was called lahars, which is just a fun word to say. Lahars, but not fun to be in. It's a massive mud flow caused by the enormous amounts of melted ice and snow from the mountain mixed with the debris from the landslide. So these fast-moving, powerful lahars flowed into rivers, filling up the Toodle River Valley with debris of mown-down trees, pommel logging camps, and homes. Between the landslide, the ash cloud, and the lahars, 
the eruption of Mount St. Helens devastated an area 23 miles across by 19 miles long and flattened 230 square miles of forest. The blast also blew off over 1,000 feet of Mount St. Helens' beautiful snow-capped peak, greatly reducing the height of the mountain. So if you look at pictures, it looks very, very different today than it did before May 18, 1980. The sheer mass of the ash cloud was so huge that it blanketed towns all over Washington and Oregon within a couple of hours, making it pitch black at high noon. The ash caused cars to stall, and the darkness caused car accidents. The ash cloud could be seen on weather radar as it spread as far away as Montana. Eventually, the ash from Mount St. Helens would travel to 11 U.S. states and Canada. It's really hard to imagine the scope of the reach of this thing. As I mentioned, the violent eruption blast ended up being lateral out of the side of the mountain. I know I've said this a lot, but instead of vertical out the top, like we traditionally think of when thinking about a volcanic, volcanic eruption. And this is huge. This is why this particular eruption was so devastating. Um, because of this, much of the marked off red and blue zones were very inadequate. These zones extended further out to the south and east of the volcano, but the devastation actually happened to the north and the west of the volcano since it erupted out of that north face. As a result, many people were injured and killed who were in supposedly safe zones. As a matter of fact, only six people who were killed were in the restricted zones, and three of them scientists and photographers had permission to be there. This is important to note because after the eruption, Governor Dixie Lee Ray blamed the victims, always a fan of victim blaming, saying they didn't listen to warnings and got too close to the volcano. President Carter said a similar thing when he visited the site, and I imagine he got his info from Governor Ray, but they were both wrong, and I want to be very clear that that was incorrect. Most victims, all but a handful, were within safe zones and died anyway, because the red and blue zones set up to protect people ended up being extended in the exact wrong direction and therefore woefully inadequate. So now for the hard part, let's talk about the devastating loss of life that occurred because of the lateral eruption of Mount St. Helens. In all, 57 people died from ages 7 to 82. Almost half of them were never found and their families had to mourn them without their remains. We'll cover and remember a few of them, but each loss of life is a devastating tragedy. So the 82-year-old, I'm sure you have guessed, is the aforementioned Harry R. Truman, proprietor of the Spirit Lake Lodge. After the landslide, Harry had just about 20 seconds before he and his lodge were completely pulverized by the fast-moving crush of earth. Just a mile away from the mountain, he and his 16 cats never stood a chance. I kind of wish you would have evacuated the cats, Harry, I'm going to be honest. And his remains were never found. He and his memory are the stuff of folklore and legend in the Mount St. Helens area. He's kind of a local hero for refusing to leave and standing his ground, but he chose his fate. 30-year-old volcanologist David Johnston, the one geologist who predicted the lateral blast, was observing Mount St. Helens from Coldwater 2, the observatory on a ridge that set a full eight miles from the volcano's summit, but which directly faced that north side bulge. He didn't normally work the weekend observation shift, but was filling in for a grad student who needed to be off that day. That act of generosity on his part sealed his fate. 
When the earthquake, landslide, and eruption happened, Johnston only had time to get to his radio and say, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it, before the radio went dead. The ash cloud would have taken just seconds to reach him even eight miles away because it was moving at several hundred miles an hour. Johnston's remains were never recovered, and the observatory that now sits at Coldwater 2 is named in his honor. 27-year-old Reed Blackburn, a newlywed, was a photographer working for a local newspaper, the Columbian, and for National Geographic. He was camped on a ridge called Coldwater Creek for days awaiting the eruption. When it came, he took a few photos, then quickly realized his life was in danger. Though he jumped in his car, the blast reached him before he even had time to put his keys into the ignition, and he was overcome and suffocated by the ash. He and his half-buried car were discovered four days later. 64-year-old Jerry Martin was a volunteer ham radio operator camping on a ridge just north of Johnston's Coldwater 2 post. Martin was volunteering as part of the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Services. This organization was helping Washington State by positioning radio operators at observation sites so they could warn the community if the mountain's volcanic activity became dangerous. Martin's altruism sealed his fate also. His post was just too close to the blast. When the earthquake and landslide occurred at 8.32 a.m., Martin began transmitting what he was seeing and feeling over the radio. He then watched in horror as David Johnston's trailer was pummeled by the ash cloud, saying, Gentlemen, the camper and car that's sitting over to the south of me is covered. It's going to hit me, too. Since the blast cloud was by this time traveling at its max speed, it would have taken only about 20 seconds to go the two miles from Johnston to Martin. Jerry Martin, too, was never heard from again. John and Christy Killian, who were 29 and 20-year-old newlyweds, were both employees of the Weyerhaeuser Logging Company. They spent Saturday night, May 17th, camping at Thon Lake, about nine miles from Mount St. Helens and well out of the Blue Zone. On Sunday morning, as the mountain erupted, John was most likely fishing and remains of his rubber raft were found, but nothing of him ever was. Christy, most likely at their campsite, was found several months later, identified by her wedding ring. Her left arm was still clutching the couple's poodle. All these deaths are tragic, but this this one coming up here of the Siebold family affected me the most, I guess, because as a parent, I can only imagine how awful this mom and dad must have felt in their final moments. Ron and Barbara Siebold had their two children, ages seven and nine, with them, and they were taking a sunny Sunday drive to get a better view of the volcano when it suddenly erupted. Their four bodies were found inside the car, suffocated from the ash. Rescue workers also found a tape recorder, and the contents of the tape were heartbreaking. Kids asking if the mountain was dangerous and mom and dad reassuring them it was perfectly safe. Because you see, they'd been told by their government that they were in a safe zone. I can really only imagine the panic and the heartbreak those parents felt when they realized they were wrong and when they realized they could not save their children. <sighs> that is a really hard one for me. The last victims I'll talk about are Terry Crawl and Karen Varner. They were both 21, and they were a couple camping with several other friends on the Green River, well outside the Blue Zone, when the mountain erupted. Terry was fishing when the eruption occurred, and he ran back to camp to warn Karen and their friends. A lot of them were still asleep. When the ash cloud was upon them, Terry dove into the tent with Karen. The strong force of the cloud plowed down the trees all around them, and one large tree fell on the couple's tent, killing them and their dogs. The reason I saved their story 
as last among the victims I've discussed is because they, they were camping with friends who survived and their story is just one of the many amazing survival stories literally that rose from the ashes of the Mount St. Helens eruption. So Terry and Karen's friends, Bruce Nelson, Sue Ruff, Brian Thomas, and Danny Balk were also camping with Karen and Terry that fateful Sunday morning. As the area they were in was heavily forested, they were soon deluged by hurricane-force winds and falling trees. Bruce and Sue fell into a hole left up by an uprooted tree, and Danny managed to escape serious injury as well, but Brian's hip was broken when a tree fell on him. As heavy ash and burning air swirled all around them, Bruce told Sue he thought they were dead, but when the wind died down, they were still alive. After freeing Brian from the falling tree, they settled him in a small shack and went for help. But Danny soon became unable to continue as he had no shoes and his feet were badly burned by the superheated ash and air. Sue and Bruce soldiered on, promising to bring help back to him and Brian. Eventually, however, both Danny and Brian separately became too frightened to remain alone. After a rest, Danny began walking again and met up with two other survivors. After walking nearly nine miles on severely burned feet, he and his new companions were rescued by a helicopter. Meanwhile, Sue and Bruce had also been found by a separate helicopter, and taking to the skies, they soon spotted Brian with his broken hip climbing over fallen trees. He had left the shack where he was sheltering, convinced he would die there. The helicopter was able to pick him up and take him to safety as well. Though they all recovered physically from their wounds, that all four of them still had to mourn the loss of their friends, Karen and Terry. Also camped on the Green River, a full 13 miles away from the volcano, and once again, well outside the blue zone. How many times can I emphasize that these people were in the safe zone? Was the Moore family. Mike, Lou, four-year-old Bonnie, and three-month-old Tara. As a mom, this is another one that really gets me. Mike and Lou were excited to show four-year-old Bonnie one of their favorite settings for camping and hiking. Lou wore baby Tara in a backpack, and they had a lovely time on Saturday. Up early Sunday morning, Lou was preparing breakfast for the family when her ears popped, and she suddenly felt like a giant hand was squeezing her body. Mike was a geology graduate, and he immediately thought of an eruption, but he was puzzled as to why they'd be feeling the effects so far away from the mountain. Soon, though, the blast cloud appeared and Mike realized this was no normal eruption. He and Lou rushed to get their survival equipment and their girls into a nearby dilapidated hunter's shack. After more than an hour of pitch black ashfall, things began to lighten up again and they were able to start walking toward the direction of their car. But they soon realized they would not be able to get around all the blown down trees with two small children. They retreated to an area where trees were still standing, and they were forced to spend another night among the ashy forest. Mike says their focus was just to keep their children alive. The next morning, they were up early to begin to try to hike out of the devastated forest. Happily around noon, they heard a helicopter, but it couldn't find a place to set down amongst the devastation, so the Moors continued to hike to a place where the helicopter could get to them. Because of the devastated terrain, it took them an hour to hike 200 yards. When they got into the chopper, the pilot told Lou they had no room for her huge backpack. There's a baby in it, she screamed above the noise. Okay, he said, keep the baby. The Moors, no doubt, aided by their camping and hiking experience and the amount of supplies they had with them, had indeed accomplished their goal, thank God, and kept their two young girls safe and alive. This last survival story 
is incredible because it took place a full 26 miles from the volcano. I mean, who can imagine your life being in danger that far away from the eruption? 20-year-old high school sweethearts Venus Durgan and Roald Wrighton were camping along the Toodle River, never giving a thought to the volcano. They weren't even trying to be close to it. However, they would soon be victim to the insane power of the fast-moving lahars that formed from the massive amounts of meltwater mixed with land, logs, and other debris. The lahars had quickly flooded the Toodle River and was racing toward Venus and rolled with sickening speed. A loud rumble awoke them from their sleep, and when they peeked out of their tent, they saw a river full of debris rushing toward them. They ran for their car, but it was too late. The car was swept up into the rushing river full of logs from a logging operation it had devastated on its way to them. They jumped off their car and rolled straddled a log, but Venus went immediately underwater. The logs tossed and crushed both of them as the flood kept racing. Though Rold's leg was crushed between two logs, he miraculously got free and saw Venus's hand reaching up from the mud. After several attempts, he was able to grab her and pull her up. Together, they navigated the logs and rushing mud until they were able to get to a riverbank. Though they were only in the river five minutes, they were both seriously injured. Venus's wrist was broken and her arm cut so badly she could see bone. Yuck. Roald was bleeding heavily from his wounds as well. Despite their injuries, they climbed to higher ground and were able to reach help and were picked up by separate helicopters. Roald asked his helicopter pilot, what the hell happened? In response, the pilot turned the chopper so that Roald could see the column of ash still rising several hours later from Mount St. Helens. That, after his ordeal, was the first time that Roald even knew there had been an eruption. He had no idea why he was in that terrible, muddy flood. There are many other amazing survivor stories and many other tragic victim stories, but it would take me five or six episodes to cover them all, so let me recommend some great resources I used to put together this episode. First and foremost is the book Eruption, The Untold Story of Mount St. Helens by Steve Olson. I read it twice and it is excellent. Next, the Nat Geo documentary Surviving the Mount St. Helens Disaster on Disney Plus, if you have it, is fantastic as well. I watched that a couple times. And I also enjoyed the Minute by Minute episode on Mount St. Helens and the Seconds from Disaster episode, which you can see on YouTube. For a full list of sources I used, please visit the show notes. And now we've come to the end of my very first episode of Disaster Queen. I am absolutely so thrilled and thankful that you've listened. And I hope you'll take a second to subscribe to the show and leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts so others can find the show and live the disaster dream with us or nightmare as the case may be. I would also love it if you could tell your friends about the show, spread the word, and please give me a follow on Instagram at DisasterQueenPod. If you have a suggestion for a disaster you'd like me to cover here, go ahead and shoot me an email, DisasterQueenPod at gmail.com. All right, until next time, don't be a disaster. The Disaster Queen Podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. 
All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.